This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. BFM 89.9, the business station. My name is Rich Bradbury. Welcome once again to Matt's Plained. It's been a bit of an odd year, which is, you know, quite a thing to say immediately after two very odd years. And it's about to get stranger as Matt Splained uncovers some more weird science. You know that um, weird doesn't have to mean horrible, Matt, don't you? Hey, Rich, well, I, I know that that's something that I've struggled with kind of in the past. So I'm going to do my best. So, you know, good news, everyone. And... <laughs> This, this really is, it's good news. It's another video from Boston Dynamics showing us how harmless their robo-dog Spot is. Uh, mm. We all remember Spot from the videos that show him rescuing people in a mine explosion, uh, not to mention the ones of uh, it dancing with Boston Dynamics humanoid robots uh, that do parkour. Now, in the latest video, the company wants to remind everyone that the dog that they incidentally sell to law enforcement agencies and armed forces isn't just a good time entertainer. In the new spot about Spot, the uh, dog wanders around a factory checking that things are working correctly. Uh, it uh -huh. takes readings from machines, it sends them back to the control center, and it even issues work orders to the human workers to come and fix any machines that aren't doing what they're supposed to be doing. And then, of course, mm -hmm. it does eventually dance with a worker who's desperate to dance with it, having seen those videos, and wants to try out his Fred Astaire routine with the machine. I mean, don't get me wrong, it's a very well shot video, it's very cute, the dance routine is extremely well done, but it, I, I still get the creeps from it, Matt. Yeah, I know, it just, it gives you the fear, doesn't it? Um, yeah. But one, one place that is calling out for something like Spot is Chernobyl in the Ukraine. Uh, according to a, uh -huh. a new piece in New Scientist, before the Russian invasion of the country, the network of sensors that surrounded the nuclear plant, uh, which of course was the site of one of the world's greatest nuclear disasters back in 1986, that network of sensors was functioning pretty well. There was a mixture of uh, hardwired systems and a, a newer network of over 60 wireless monitoring stations. So there were no immediate plans or even any need to upgrade those systems. However, mm -hmm. the plant and the forest surrounding it was occupied by some, uh, for some weeks by Russian forces. And yeah. the Ukraine's nuclear safety department has reported that much of that external monitoring infrastructure is no longer operational. Uh, things like servers and computer equipment where backup data was stored were reportedly damaged or removed. Uh, scientists at the plant believe that some of the monitoring stations in the forest may have been mistaken by Russian troops for Ukrainian military hardware because they were housed in these you know, small steel bunker-type buildings. And yeah. efforts to check on the status of those remote stations is being hampered because there are lots of mines that have been sold in the forests and the fields around uh, around the uh, nuclear plant 
uh, as the Russians left. And um, Boston Dynamics could be the solution, could it? Well, not just Boston Dynamics, but, you know, any kind of versatile mobile robot. Uh, I mentioned Boston Dynamics here because uh, researcher Yannick Verbalen of the uh, University of Bristol, he uh, actually successfully created and trialed a portable monitoring station that was mounted on one of uh, Boston Dynamics' four-legged friends. Uh, of course, this was before the war. So mm. with uh, live munitions likely to be a threat to people in the area for the foreseeable future, because you know even removing the mines from irradiated soil presents a whole bunch of issues, yeah. robots are you know one way to reduce that threat and it's much better for a poor old spot to get blown up for than you know than for a person to lose a limb or or die because of it won't radiation be a problem for the machines though well early attempts to build robots to do similar jobs failed for that reason but that was partly due to the uh, stage that robotics technology was at sort of 30 Mm. or 40 years ago and Mm -hmm. also because the radiation levels around chernobyl in the first decade were much higher so the combination of modern robotics and lower radiation levels makes it a possibility now Uh, admittedly the bristol team had to create and build some radiation resistant components from scratch Uh, not because the parts don't exist but because a lot of radiation resistant components are covered by export uh, restrictions because they have potential military applications but Mm. as i said it was a successful experiment Uh, cost of course is going to be an issue Uh, a fleet of spots or equivalent from a competitor could turn out to be extremely expensive. So the Bristol team also looked at creating drone-mounted systems that could also map the hotspots. That could turn out to be cheaper because, you know, the drones cost from a few hundred dollars, but the protected sensor systems will bring the price up to about 15,000 US dollars per unit. But yeah, you know, mm. not all drones and robots are bad. Which can't be said about radiation. Uh, I do have more radiation news so wonderful (laughs) wonderful Uh, i told you it's the weird episode uh (laughs) men men and women you know they face very different risks from radiation exposure um breast and ovarian tissue are especially sensitive so women are generally at a greater risk of developing uh, cancer after being exposed to radiation than the men are. Uh, of course, um, when it comes to astronauts, uh, we've done a reasonable amount of research on the effects of radiation on men in space. But surprise, surprise, there hasn't been much research into the effects of that radiation on women who happen to be in space because, you know, mm. there aren't any female astronauts, right? And Elon Musk's Mars colony is going to be men only as well, I guess. Well, we all need safe spaces. Uh, yeah, and we should start GoFundMe pages for all the people we'd like to go and live on Mars. Um, but <laughs> I've got that's a few. another topic entirely. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> So anyway, astronauts are subjected to cosmic rays, to solar radiation, as well as radiation from their own equipment. Now, most of the radiation that we get down here on Earth, although it is dangerous, it's actually known as low energy or non-ionizing radiation. Uh, It's known as this because you can avoid it by shielding yourself if you use the correct materials. Uh, Space radiation, ionizing radiation, 
is much harder to protect against. It has the ability to pass through materials and it changes those materials as it passes through. So if we're going to exist in space for prolonged periods, say years at a time, we have to have a better understanding of how cosmic radiation will affect us in the long term, mm. especially mm. as those radiation levels fluctuate. You know, the sun has an 11-year cycle. There are peaks and troughs in the amount of radiation it emits. And there's also the issue of how much exposure occupants face as their spacecraft go in and out of uh, the radiation belts around our own planet and potentially around other planets. That, that's not something that I, I learned about on uh, any episode of Star Trek. Well, no, and Star Wars is even worse. You know, people seem to go into space in ships that seem to have about as much protection and ceiling as something that the Wright <laughs> brothers might have built. I mean, R2-D2 and BB-8, they don't even get shielding for re-entry. My brain boils if I sleep without the aircon on. Um, anyway, um, NASA is planning to include female mannequins on its uncrewed Artemis 1 mission later this year. The mannequins named uh, Helga and Zohar have been developed at the German Aerospace Center, and each will contain close to uh, 6,000 passive and active sensors that def uh, detect the effects of cosmic radiation on different parts of the body. And those mm. sensors are located to mimic the position of various tissues and, of course, the internal organs. Now, similar tests have been carried out before uh, by various space-traveling nations, but as I said before, the mannequins to date have all been male. Uh, Zohar is the lucky one. She's going to be wearing a radiation-blocking vest, while Helga is being sacrificed to science and gets no protection at all. Uh, the Helga. results, I know, poor Helga, the results will be built into a, a 3D simulation of the exposure levels at any given point within the flight, allowing the researchers to see which parts of the female body are most at risk and gain a better understanding of how to protect women astronauts in the future. Can we just uh, get back to the robots just for a, a sec? There you go. There's the patriarchy at work, folks. I tried to talk about women in space and Richard just wants to talk about robots. Hey, you gave me the question. Are you the robot? And the listeners have only got your <laughs> word for that. It doesn't sound like something I'd do. I guess Not it comes sure. down to who you think is a more reliable narrator. Um, okay, I, I admit it. I set you up for that. I just didn't have a great way to pivot into a, a story about the creepy sea creature that is the blood worm. Uh, well, what a wonderful name. Yeah. 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 Uh, it actually looks worse than it sounds. Uh, the blood worm, it's one of those nightmare creatures that nature seems to delight in creating. It can grow up to about 30 centimeters in length. It buries in itself in the mud on the seafloor, and it has poison tip jaws that it uses to attack whatever passes by. Uh, thankfully, its bite, although painful, uh, isn't actually toxic to humans. Now, why are we talking about bloodworms uh, other than to end this segment in the most unpleasant way that you can? I mean, you say that like it isn't a reason. Um, a few <laughs> months ago, you know, we talked about termites as, uh, as, you know, creatures that we should consider to be our friends rather than our enemies. And ah. bloodworms are actually the same, despite their name and their awful appearance. 
One of the unique things about these uh, seafloor carnivores is that their jaws are strengthened with copper. Now, this is unusual for a number of reasons. Firstly, copper is usually toxic to living things in large quantities. And ah. secondly, the bloodworms are not only unharmed by the copper, they actually synthesize and metabolize it. They use it to uh, create wow. a kind of super strong melanin that reinforces their jaws. I think they have up to about 10% copper in their jaws. Now, this isn't a new discovery. Uh, researchers at the University of California, Santa Barbara, uh, discovered that this process is actually governed are governed by a single protein. And this discovery could unlock new ways to build, strangely enough, composite materials. So um, superstructures based on bloodworms. Well, you know, not the worms themselves, but the simplicity of the process. So uh, huh. the story came from, yeah, it came from new scientists as well. The catalysts used to create composites are usually quite complex proteins, and mm. those processes are often quite, you know, they're involved, they're inten uh, energy intensive. And uh, I'm paraphrasing here. The protein in the bloodworm seems to control a multi-step process. It binds copper from the environment, it mixes it into an aqueous solution, it separates it. And then it creates this dense liquid, which in turn catalyzes the conversion of uh, an amino acid into melanin. So the understanding of this process could help engineers to improve the design and manufacturing processes of existing composites, things like concrete, rubber, mm. and unlock the door to the production of new materials. So say hello to your new friend, the bloodworm. Uh, the, uh, I don't know how I feel about that. Um, but when we come back, can we talk about machines that, you know, fail to comply, please? Yeah, of course. All right. You tune into Matt Splained here on BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Balanced Frank Medium, BFM. 89.9 BFM 89.9 the business station my name is Rich Bradbury welcome back to Matt Splained um, Matt what's all this about machine uh, what's all this about machines failing to comply uh, are these like more robot stories well, I like robots. Um, so, yeah, more robot stories. Uh, this Yay. first one is actually, yeah, about self-driving robots, so cars. Uh, this is a, a report I saw in The Verge about the recent approval for taxi companies uh, Baidu and Pony.ai to operate driverless e-hailing services in Beijing. Uh, self-driving cars uh, you know, they've kind of threatened to become the flying cars of the 21st century, even though yeah. flying cars are still the flying cars of the 21st century. You know, it, it's this idea of a technology that's really close, but it's elusive enough that it never 
seems to fully materialize. Mm. Mm. You know, spool back 15 years and idiots like me would be telling you that by the 2020s, cars would be doing their own driving. We'd be luxuriating in the back seat with our Blackberries and our GPRS connections, loading up basic <laughs> web pages in less than two minutes. Um, how amazing the future looked to us all back then. So the, the implementation of autonomous cars has proven to be an I wouldn't say disappointing, I guess a lot more complex and problematic, uh, especially within those real world settings than scientists thought, you know, back 15 years ago. So what's so special about this Beijing announcement then? What's so big about it? Well, Beijing, or at least a limited area of the city, joins a very small number of global cities where autonomous cars are allowed to operate as the word says, autonomously. In right. most cities, they still require a backup human operator who can take over the wheel if anything goes wrong. And I think it's mostly a handful of Californian cities where these cars can, you know, ply the roads entirely independently. So uh -huh. both Baidu and Pony have been uh, previously been granted taxi licenses uh, for their, or, or if not taxi licenses, then operation licenses for their self-driving fleet in Beijing. But the cars had to have a human driver in case of any of those problems. So the new ruling requires that a human supervisor still has to be in the car, but not necessarily behind the wheel, which is kind of a bit weird because I don't know how I'd feel if I hailed yeah. a car and it arrived with someone already lounging in the back seat. Yeah. Um, the license also limits the number of cars to 10 for Baidu and 4 for Pony, and it limits them to the, uh, a 60 square kilometer area in the Yizhuang district of the uh, city. So you mentioned California uh, as an example of cities where autonomous cars uh, do operate. What are some of the experiences that, you know, people who have lived there have had? On the whole, I think it's been okay. But when there are mishaps, you know, they're often weird, which is why we're including it all in weird science. So this first hmm. one, it's not a California example. There was a case in Arizona about a year ago where a Waymo taxi blocked a road after becoming confused by a traffic cone. Um, yep, you know, that's yeah <laughs> I, do, I know i mean too. it happens to us all yeah uh, especially you know those of us have been undergraduate students on a night out you know, traffic is very confusing on those nights uh, more recently there were complaints from the residents of a quiet cul-de-sac in san francisco who claimed that up to 50 waymo cars an hour would drive into the street and then have to u-turn they said there were even what? queues queues of autonomous cars waiting to u-turn uh, but my favorite is actually from a few weeks ago, um, also in San Francisco, a car being operated by a company called Cruise was pulled over by police who noticed that its headlights weren't on. Did it talk to them like Kit? I'm not sure if we're allowed to make Knight Rider references anymore. I think the uh, statute of limitations has expired on the, <laughs> the relevance of that show until, of course, Never. someone does the, Yeah, well, you know, someone will reboot it for Netflix, of course. But, you know, the, the story itself was interesting because the cops clearly had no idea what to do. You know, they, mm. they see this car with no headlights on, they pull it over, they walk up to it, um, and they can't even open the, the doors. Everything's locked. In the end, I think they called the company. They spoke to a handler. But it raises all sorts of issues about road regulations and the way that they're enforced. Uh, mm. The company Cruise, uh, it 
announced uh, that it has an educational video to inform law enforcement on how to interact with its vehicles. But even that's weird. You know, as far as I'm aware, road users don't normally get to tell the police how to interact with them. Yeah, yeah. I can't just put up a video and ask all the police in a city to look at it to understand the rules of interacting with me. <laughs> Especially when they've broken the law. Come on. Well, that's the thing. You know, we've covered the issue of responsibility in other shows over the years, so I'm not going to go into that here. I'm more interested in the uh, practicalities in this instance. Um, you know, as I said, the police stopped the car. They weren't able to open any of the doors. The only thing they could have done was to smash a window. But how do you issue a ticket to a car like that? How do you sum summons it to court? What if the car had actually failed to stop? You know, as it is at the end of that encounter, the car simply pulled away, even though it wasn't clear from the video that I saw that the police had released it from detention. So mm. does this mean, you know, in the future that police cruisers have to have a kill switch for, you know, every kind of autonomous car on the road? And right, what yeah. would that mean for the the safety of riders? Because any technology that the police can get, criminals can get too. So this all goes to kind of highlight how unready all of that societal infrastructure is to cope with the realities of technology that's already out there on our streets. Um, can I do another quick drone story? Oh, go on then. Yeah, go on. Well, I came across this by chance when I was looking at all the videos on autonomous cars. And we're used to hearing stories about drones being used to smuggle things like contraband into prison, mm. you know, drugs, mobile phones, that kind of thing. So police were called to a home in uh, Port Lambton in Ontario in late April. It's just across the Canadian border from Detroit. Uh, they were called by the residents of a house who had found a stranger with a remote control in their garden in the middle of the night, uh, startled. Uh, the stranger crashed the drone he was flying into a tree and then fled. Uh, when the police came, they found that the drone was carrying 11 illegal handguns, uh, which were thought to have been what? flown in to Canada from the, the US across the border. But I think what struck me the most about this was the high-tech, low-tech nature of the attempt. Yes, it was high-tech in that the criminals were using a commercial drone that could carry, you know, several kilos of cargo. Low-tech uh. in that they were basically taped to hooks inside a cheap, you know, a plastic carrier bag that you get when you go to the grocery store. So, you know, it, it brings us back to some of those same points as the last story. These mm. technologies are already here and we're kind of unprepared for them. And we're going to have to do, I think, some really rapid catching up to the technologies mm. that are already here. Okay. Uh, moving away from drones then, what else do you have? Well, I want to stay in the general area, um, you know, whether it's drones or electric vehicles or other power-hungry mobile products, recharging is still a major problem, especially yeah. with those cars. You know, other than the, the cost, what puts a lot of people off buying an electric car is the time it takes to recharge. Now, modern superchargers can put a decent amount of range into some of the higher-end EVs in about an hour. But even that pales in comparison to the few minutes it takes to put, you know, liquid fossils into a traditional combustion engine. Mm. And until we solve that 
refueling, that recharging problem, we're unlikely to see people, you know, rushing to embrace this new technology. Do you think you're still addicted to petrol? Well, I know that people might expect me to be an early adopter of electric vehicles, but no, I mean, I, I do care about the environment, but I haven't managed to kick my petrol habit. I don't really drive that much, but when I do, it's usually more than that 20 kilometers a day or whatever the average mm. commute is. And I would probably use about 80% of the battery capacity just running my AC at the Arctic temperatures that I need. Um, but <laughs> that could be about to change. Um, the batteries, that is, not my need for frigid air. That's not going anywhere. Uh, this is another story from uh, New Scientist. This is researchers from the University of Science and Technology of China in Hefei. They have uh, devised a lithium-ion battery, which can charge to about 60% in six minutes. The uh, wow. batteries, yeah, that's pretty good. The batteries were tested as charging from 0 to 60% in under six minutes and to 80% in under 12. They didn't test to 100% because a lot of car manufacturers recommend that you only charge the batteries to about 80% to, to keep them in peak condition. But yeah. 12, 12 minutes, to me, that still seems like a long time to be sitting at a charging point. But I think that six minutes, that seems, you know... Not unlike the amount of time that we already spend filling up with petrol. That's right. Uh, and to be clear, this is technology for existing lithium-ion style batteries? Yeah, in the sense that it isn't an entirely new type of battery. You know, we've reported in the past that in terms of capacity and efficiency, we're already pushing the boundaries of uh, both in terms of lithium-ion uh, power packs. For technologies like electric planes and flying vehicles, we are going to need more powerful, lighter batteries. So this isn't about increased capacity. It is mm. about charging the technology that we already have and charging it faster. So they achieve this by changing the internal structure of the battery. Uh, Lithium-ion batteries are quite slow to charge because the solid anode of the battery tends to have a random distribution of particles. Uh, the particles are usually made of graphite. The team in Hefe overcame this by creating a more structured anode, which arranges the particles pretty much in order of size. Um, to what end? Was that a polarity joke? Um, <laughs> I, I don't know. I mean, I'm not an expert in this kind of stuff. Again, I'm paraphrasing from New Scientist because there's a lot of dense sciencey stuff here. Uh, mm. This allowed them, uh, this, uh, this approach allowed them to tweak the density of the particles in the batteries. This is known as the porosity. They used a higher porosity at the top of the anode and a lower porosity at the bottom. So that overall the average was, you know, just normal. Uh, this enables them to charge faster. I don't really understand why. In my mind, I'm imagining some top to bottom pouring type thing you know like a i don't know a cone or something but i don't know if that's accurate in any way or it's just a creation uh, they did all of this by coating the graphite anode particles with copper and they added in copper nanowires as well so when heated and cooled this sealed in that structure with the distributed porosity uh, they've noted that the construction and the heating and cooling process could 
add uh, extra cost to hmm. finished batteries. What kind of increase in cost, we still don't know. But I'm betting that this or something similar could be the key to making electric ve- uh, vehicles look like a true petrol alternative. But, mm-hmm. you know, that's enough of me droning on. The big takeaway from today's show is Richard's horrifying toxic masculinity. Uh, Matthew, please. Thank you for that. Good I, show, I don't change show. the truth. <laughs> you might manipulate it ever so slightly. Thank you very much for today's show, Matt. Thank you very much. Now, as usual, folks, you, of course, can find Matt on Instagram and on Twitter at Culture Matt or subscribe to the Culture Pop newsletter on Substack for more information about these shows. I'm Rich Bradbury for BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.